I, I've been looking online and I'm finding a lot of Twilight super fans and I just want to make it clear that I am not a Twilight super fan. I'm more like somebody who rediscovered something I used to be a super fan of and now I'm just trying to process that. I am only making that distinction not because I would be embarrassed to describe myself that way, but because I think we really need to give credit to the people who devote huge parts of their lives to the Twilight fandom. That's not me. So I really just want to put that out there because I don't know everything about the series and I've done my best to do research and there's plenty of research to be done. But um, there's a lot of content. There's so much more Twilight content than you realize. And if I'm the biggest Twilight fan, you know, that's great. But there are people eight times more committed than I am. I literally have to Google things like, what genre is this technically? Like, Stephanie Meyer's novels are... They're young adult fiction, but they're also fantasy. They're also romance. So... Like, it's hard for me to call it a romance novel because that gets confused for, like, erotic novels. I'm really in the business of trying to figure out the Twilight series and not so much educate about the Twilight series, just in case that wasn't already made clear. I also have been reading and watching a whole lot of other vampire stuff, and I'm coming to find out that the vampire-human relationship is innately codependent. And oftentimes it really is like male vampire, human, girl, fall in love, and they go from there. And something about the power dynamic of that is innately codependent, like I just said. Stephanie Meyer, however, plays to that like no one ever has before or ever has since. I find myself trying to twist the fantasy concepts that she creates because... I want to understand the more rigid science because she does so much with the lore. She changes so much the lore. It doesn't match with like typical North American vampire stuff. Like she has created vampires that don't bleed. They don't get drunk. They don't sleep. Or in like so many other vampires do all that stuff. They're just like chunks of ice or stone. Right. And like, that's something that has come up. Edward is marble or whatever. When they get hurt, it's more like an instant scar because they don't bleed. They never really get bored enough to drink. They don't burn in the sun. There's all this stuff. They don't have any sort of religious connotation. Crosses don't bother them. You can't stake them in the heart. Also, their reflection thing is kind of disputed because in the books it doesn't come up, but there's totally reflections of the vampires in the movies. So is that just movie editing that disregards vampire lore, or is that intentional creation of Twilight lore? We'll probably never know. <laughs> I just It feels like just a movie mistake. And anyways, um, the thing that really gets me, the thing that the biggest piece of lore that is thrown out the window vampires in twilight do not need an invitation to enter the home they can just wander in they're a walking boundary violation and edward cullen ruined my life I, on any given day, I usually say that I'm Team Jacob. There's Team Jacob, there's Team Edward. 
the way that I understand it for the most part is that somebody is team Edward until new moon. And then after that, they're team Jacob because Jacob has more of a plot line. That's the way that I understand it to submit to the idea that Bella should commit to one of these guys when there are technically other options there are other people in the world she could potentially fall in love with. Maybe, maybe she's single forever. Maybe she falls in love with both and they do like a thruple thing. There's all kinds of options here that are ignored, but in the team, Jacob team, Edward binary. My understanding is that people start as Team Edward because in that first book, everyone loves him. He's the tall, strong, protector guy. That's why it's so devastating that he might leave at some point. Get why there's Team Edward, even though I personally feel like I'm more on a Jacob side of things once the whole series is finished. He's completely magnetic, and maybe that's partly the predator-prey dynamic that's been described maybe that's just raw codependency but that magnetism that he has with bella and by proxy the reader is what makes the relationship so interesting to read about that's what makes you want to be in it so badly it is more of an addiction and it's codependency the word codependent is thrown around a lot so i just want to take a moment to fully define it i used to think that it just meant that somebody was dependent on somebody else but that's That doesn't totally cover it because in a relationship, you are going to be dependent on each other from time to time. That part is healthy and codependency is fundamentally unhealthy. There is a person who is giving and a person who is always receiving and there's not a give and take that can be expected. I know the word's overused, but it's toxic. It's not good. I don't think there's even really a healthy example of of a normal dependency in twilight like maybe esme and carlisle but we don't know a lot about their relationship maybe Emmett and rosalie but their relationship isn't totally healthy it just might not be codependent like they both have their own lives going on so that's good codependency exists when one person plans their entire life around meeting the needs of the other person bella swan plans her life around everything edward wants and the opposite edward plans his entire life around bella Their relationship is uniquely codependent because their entire self-worth for either of them comes from sacrificing who they are to be with the other person. And the other person is all too willing to receive those sacrifices. Throughout the series, I think that mostly Bella is the one sacrificing. Like we talked about in the last episode, she's been parentified. She wants to be the caregiver. She wants to give as much of her life as possible to Edward. And I think that in most instances of like scenes in Twilight, it's like Bella's giving too much of herself. Edward's all too willing to receive that. We see that just when he monopolizes her time and draws her away from her friends and doesn't think twice about it. But other times it is switched where he's being codependent. He is willing to give up the protection of his family and violate their trust for the sake of impressing Bella or being near Bella, then she's kind of filling the role of the enabler in that sense. So they're just all kinds of fun. (laughs) They're all kinds of fun. Why wouldn't you want them at your party? Neither of them can find happiness outside of each other. They've got this really cool tension going that can be twisted into romance, but really is just like Edward could snap at any moment and suck Bella's blood. And that's that's how it always is when a vampire is in love with a human. That's the age-old story of the vampire in love with the human, is that he can't risk his animal instincts coming into play right when he, he could injure the object of his affection and 
it's like literally damned if you do damned if you don't and literally damned because you don't have a soul like it's that's what makes it so compelling in any and all teen vampire sagas of the past 30 years the girl is prone to falling in love with a vampire because he's a little bit standoffish it's that part of you that's trained to believe like oh men only want one thing well the vampire doesn't want the one thing because he can't go for it because he'll kill you so any vampire that has a soul which comes up it always in every individual plot it's like there's the one family or the one vampire that has a soul but then like all the different vampire plots have one like angel and buffy stefan and vampire diaries the collins like (laughs) they have a soul they like eat squirrels they go about their life that's the thing though is that the guy this is teenage world this guy doesn't want to have sex right away he doesn't even want to kiss he wants to like hold your hand gently like a jane austen novel which is bella's dream it's just it's it's funny and it's cliche and it works and so it's been done a bunch of times edward specifically is even better because as a vampire he's sober most vampires have blood he doesn't so i don't think he can really have a blood alcohol content therefore he doesn't drink which also works for like the whole celibate mormon thing that goes on in these books again it's like another compelling factor he's not wasting his time he's not he's not frivolous he's mature and he's sober he doesn't move too fast and he's helpful he is the protector i think that that's really important to reiterate he is the protector he isn't sure if he is but he is he kind of makes it seem like oh i'm protecting you so that kind of makes it worth it that i've got all these quirks where i like keep secrets and i you know had a quirky murder streak 50 years ago which is another thing that all vampire lads have at some point is a quirky murder streak and a lot of them are like oops i'm a vampire edward on the other hand hates himself that's his whole thing you don't get that when you read twilight and the reason why is because vampires don't get rejected like ever they don't that's how again like i think the most potent comparisons for this like i like to joke that edward isn't nosferatu because he's not he's not trolling the castle or whatever but buffy was before twilight vampire diaries was after twilight so we have this pre and this post vampire man falls in love with human girl the vampire never gets rejected and in all three of those stories the vampire man chose the girl without her really choosing him first maybe in twilight there's some aspect of bella i mean actually in all of them there's an aspect of yeah she's attracted to him but he really chose her there is no room for rejection they choose who they want and they use their supernatural gifts to woo the person that they're interested in bella is looking for a really specific type of person and that type of person is just somebody who is stable and is reliably there for her and that's not that's not actually what she gets with edward but that's what she's convinced she's getting with edward because when he is there he is obsessive that is the only word that applies to this relationship he's not actually there all that much he spends a lot more time watching her sleep hiding in treetops and his love for her is characterized more as an addiction than like an actual relationship he is obsessed with her and that does shine through when he's in her presence when he's not with bella he's thinking about her he's relying on the idea of her when if we get more books from his perspective like sequels to midnight sun we might get to see what it's like for him to be away from her for longer periods of time but 
in Midnight Sun, all of his thoughts, even when he's not in her presence, are framed by this budding relationship with Bella. It is not, and I just cannot make this clear enough, it is not the same kind of obsession that Bella has with him. She's, like, low-key having panic attacks when he's not at school. He just, like, wants to control the situation. And he is satisfied with being able to see her, and he has the supernatural gifts to be able to spy on her pretty constantly. She doesn't have any of that. So she's, like, utterly without control, and that's where her obsession and her panic comes from. And his comes from, it is also a control thing, but it's that if he can't totally exert the overwhelmingly inhuman amount of control that he has, then he's frustrated. You learn from Midnight Sun, he sometimes learns about her by just like reading the books on her bookshelf while she's not at home or like while she's sleeping or listening in on her conversations or listening in on the thoughts of people around her. Yeah, he technically knows these things about her, but like, how would he ever bring them up in conversation? How would he reveal that he was eavesdropping on her entire life and like literally stalking her? Why not try to have that more authentic connection? Why not actually like get to see her talk and like spend time with her if that's the intention is to actually get to know her and build a relationship? But there's a scene in Twilight where Edward and Emmett go on a weekend trip to hunt because it's going to be sunny and forks, so they have to get out of town. Like I've said, vampire lore has changed thanks to Stephanie Meyer. My first real introduction to vampires was through Twilight, and I didn't know what happened to other vampires when they went in the sun. Apparently, they turn into dust. Majority of them turn into dust. Or they burn up, or they die. Um, some of them are just paralyzed. I mean, some do nothing. It started at Nosferatu. There are plenty of vampires who aren't harmed by sunlight at all. Twilight vampires are the only ones who sparkle. And that has made such an impact. Every vampire story since has had to address the sparkle thing. Like, in Vampire Diaries, they have to be like, Uh, yeah, that wasn't totally right. We don't actually sparkle. And there's this, like, funny made-for-TV Nickelodeon movie called Liar Liar Vampire, where this... (laughs) This kid goes to a new school and he's accidentally like contributing to this gossip that he might be a vampire. And part of it is that he gets wrapped by accident in this poster board covered in glitter. And (laughs) and it falls off and people like turn a corner and he's glittering in the sun and they're like, oh my god, he's a vampire. I love that. Rewriting lore like that, I am all for. I love that. That's a way to make it creative. That's great. And everybody, whether you like Twilight or not, has had to address this vampire lore that was invented and propagated exclusively by Stephanie Meyer, and that is a legacy. So anyway, in Twilight, Edward and Emmett go out on a trip out of town to suck some animal blood like they do. We know from Midnight Sun that Edward felt almost agonized at the thought of even saying a temporary goodbye because he knew that Bella was so soft and so vulnerable. Not because he would miss her, because he knew that she was soft and vulnerable. It was like he was leaving a brick of brie on a construction site, and he was worried it was going to get damaged. Not that he, like, wanted to spend more time with her or something. God forbid. He tells her to be safe, because he's worried. He goes through this, oh god, is it safer if I'm here to protect her, or is she safer if I leave? He's going through this constantly. He can't tell what his actual role is in her life he's going through it constantly and there's a whole bunch to unpack in the trip he does with emmett emmett and rosalie have weird drama and emmett picks a fight with a bear and it's a whole thing and they do just you know normal vampire in the woods on a sunny day stuff but edward's main takeaway is that he's having a hard time viewing himself as a protector even though that's the only way bella views him 
that's the only way the reader views him. And he has a bunch of protective instincts. So even he knows that he is being protective of her. But when Edward gets back from his trip, it's still sunny. So Edward and all the other sparkle vampires stay away from the school to be, to, to, you know, avoid being outed as vampires. They took their weekend trip, but they can't come back to school and, until they will no longer sparkle. Bella's freaking out because Edward said he was going on this trip, but he's not back at school yet. And she doesn't know if he's ever coming back. And this is a thing that she goes through a lot is she has this fear that he's not coming back. Well, unfortunately he is always on the brink of fleeing. So that's a pretty realistic instinct in this book. Like the way Stephanie Meyer wrote it is like Bella thinks he's always going to abandon her. And simultaneously he is always planning his abandonment. Like it's really what's happening. But he loves to gaslight Bella and tell her that she's making that up. So when they get back from hunting, there are a couple of days where Edward is in town. It's sunny out. And he's like hiding in the shadows to watch Bella live her life. But she doesn't know that he's back yet. It comes up in the car when they finally reunite in Port Angeles. He mentions the three-day trip and Bella tries to clarify. Like, if it was only three days, why hadn't she seen him? He mentions the no vampires in the daylight thing. Which, you know, we're talking modern vampire story we need to clarify the lore and we get this passage in midnight sun i doubted i could come up with an analogy to explain this one so i just told her i'll show you sometime and then immediately wondered if this was a promise i would end up breaking i'd said the words so casually but i could not imagine actually following through it wasn't something to worry about now i didn't know if i would be allowed to see her again after tonight did i love her enough yet to bear leaving her you might have called me she said what an odd conclusion. But I knew you were safe. But I didn't know you were. I... She came to an abrupt stop and looked at her hands. What? I didn't like it, she said shyly, the skin over her cheekbones warming. Not seeing you. It makes me anxious, too. And this is the first time Edward finds out Bella kind of likes him. And that's kind of shocking for a handful of reasons. They must have terrible communication. Like, just absolutely god-awful communication if she, if he didn't realize Bella liked him and he is already to the point of fully stalking her. He's in Port Angeles following her and he doesn't even know if she likes him. He has seen her whisper Edward in her sleep, but he doesn't know if she likes him. He's incredibly insecure. In Twilight, this passage is nearly identical except from Bella's perspective, Edward comes off as angry. That entire car ride, he's angry. Edith isn't angry, and Bella is embarrassed for asking. A line from Twilight is, I tried very hard to not look like a sulky child. This is, for the record, textbook self-objectification. She's not saying, I felt like sulking. I didn't want him to notice that I was sad. There's actually no acknowledgement of her actual emotion. Instead, she's saying, I tried very hard to not look like a sulking child. She's worried about how it looks to him, not expressing how she actually feels. And, worse, she's comparing herself to a child. In Life and Death, Edith is the one who's described as anxious in that car ride. She doesn't come off as angry. She comes off like someone is hurting her. She looks like she's in pain. It doesn't take a genius. Absolutely none of these critiques take a genius. But it doesn't take a genius to notice that Stephanie Meyer is just saying that the woman is anxious in both scenes. Even though... Maybe the person who was just attacked and then tried to say that they were in love with or even just interested in spending time with the other person. Mm, 
I would think that person would be anxious in both scenes, but instead it's the woman who's anxious in both scenes. And um, record scratch, it is not a gendered issue to be anxious or have anxiety. And this is one of these things. So there's a bunch of these things that'll get you in. If you're ever at a table trying to make a case for feminism, this is one of these things that gets you in a corner because at the same time as men aren't immune to anxiety and it's not really fair to women to accuse them of being anxious all the time, women are more often diagnosed with anxiety for a handful of reasons. For starters, they are more likely to actually see a doctor who might diagnose those things because they're willing to address it in the first place because they're more allowed to feel their emotions or whatever. They're disproportionately victims of violence by an intimate partner, so they might be anxious in day-to-day life because that's a thing that contributes to that. And they're more often diagnosed with phobias for similar reasons. They're historically subjugated to being dependent on men and they're afraid of the world. These are just vast generalizations, right? But it's one of these double-edged swords because on the one hand, there's no given discrepancy that women are more anxious than men and that's not something you can assume about someone at birth and there's plenty of ways to be raised where that's not the case but it is sometimes appropriate to talk about anxiety as a women's issue because however we're doing it right now however society is functioning whatever that is spitting out is making women more anxious than men technically or at least diagnosing them with anxiety more often so It's both. (laughs) It both is a women's problem and not a women's problem. But bringing it back down to Twilight Earth, this is a teenage vampire love story rooted in codependency. I would think both sides are anxious, not in a gendered way. Like, I would actually think everybody's anxious. But, like, Bo, the human boy in Life and Death, is not anxious. He says he's freaked out, which is just annoying. I'm just annoyed by it. It's a vampire book, and it has a lot of influence. It's a vampire universe. It's completely acceptable to describe a boy as shy or anxious. It's not groundbreaking. It's not. Bilbo Baggins is a timid dude, but he still managed to make history, you know? Bo could be timid and still managed to get the girl become a vampire, live his codependent life, abuse his friends and family. He still could have done all that the same way Bella did. But no, they make him freaked out and not anxious. I don't get it because Bella is one of the shyest characters of all time. I was literally trying to find comparisons and I googled shy characters outside the context of Twilight and the first blog post I hit had Bella Swan on it. Like she's one of the shyest characters of all times. But Bo isn't shy. In this scene of all scenes, he's not shy. He's just been almost attacked. You don't just eliminate shyness when you introduce a Y chromosome to a character. Stephanie Meyer is, by every fault of her own, writing guidelines for acceptable behavior. And her guidelines suck. If I could give my sixth grade self any advice, it would be question Stephanie Meyer. Use this as a sounding board Question everything. Figure out what about this you do and don't accept. This is not your Bible. This isn't what you want. This is what you want to think about. It is something to think about. It's something worth reading. But 
kind of bounce your ideas off of that. Don't just accept it all outright. It is not your Bible. If anything, the Bible is the body keeps the score. At 25, that's the Bible these days. <laughs> and maybe I'll be doing another podcast in 10 years that the body keeps the score in my life, but I hope not. And I have reason to believe that it'll last longer. It's by Bessel van der Kolk. Half my friends, I walk into their house and I like spy it on the bookshelf. Like people have read this book. It is very personal. It's about healing from trauma and it's it's definitely worth reading if you have any interest at all in like trauma and healing. If you're in therapy, if you've got stuff to think about, even if you know people who have been through a lot of traumatic stuff and you want to be more of an ally to them. And that I think is everybody. You either know somebody or you are somebody who's been through a lot of stuff. So Edward Cullen has trauma in spades. I can and do apply this book to every single character I read or watch but it's actually surprisingly difficult to apply it to Edward Cullen because his body is dead. Other vampires have more of an indication of a human body. Edward Cullen is like a dead body. <laughs> when you consider, okay, someone gets a racing heartbeat or night terrors or even like some sort of nervous system breakdown, you can't really apply it to edward because as far as we're aware he doesn't have much of an internal organ system there's this crazy scene that he describes swallowing bella's tear and it just sitting inside of him he just put like a droplet of glass down his throat or something it is crazy but yeah he doesn't process things he doesn't have internal functioning that we understand it's completely fuzzy he's hot and mysterious from the outside but he's just like a biological mystery in a regular human being, the psychological and the physical bodies are closely tied. But in the case of a Twilight vampire, the physical body is a totally separate being from the mental person. This could be a dead end to the conversation, but that's not fun. And he does react to things in a physical way, even though it's safe to assume that he doesn't have all the same exact functionings. This is fantasy and not science fiction. I have to res remind myself constantly of that. We don't have Edward's chart for if he's admitted to the hospital, but we do kind of have an understanding of like what he is and how he behaves. The first thing we know is that he hates himself. Can't say this enough times. Edward hates himself. He seems confident when you read Twilight, but when you read Midnight Sun, the veil is completely lifted. And when you put it in the context of like body keeps the score, you think about it like becoming a vampire is super invasive it is long lasting it's a lot to deal with and in a perfect world we would have some sort of re-entry program for vampires who want to live a life with a soul and they can get see therapy immediately after transitioning because the colons and you know the other vampires in these stories where they are in a situation where they'd even be able to fall in love with a human have re-entered society to an extent where they need to be able to behave like they need to be able to pass as human and edward has only reached the point of being able to like sit in the cafeteria and like stare creepy but he never got any of his social skills rehabilitated after he had a really serious invasive thing done and on top of that, like, living through multiple wars and whatever. Just being alive for that long. Seeing everybody you know pass. Like, that, all of that is a lot. So I don't hold it against him. I think he needs to learn how to cope. I don't know if that's really his fault, but it is something he needs to do. According to The Body Keeps the Score, people define themselves as worthless when they are either mistreated or abandoned. And this message was sent to a young Edward Cullen loud and clear that he was completely alone on this planet. He was 
dying of the Spanish flu in 1918 when Carlisle turned him and the saving grace of Carlisle turning him kind of also marked him as one of history's villains. Like the vampire is the villain. On top of that, you do get abandoned when all of your human friends, even the ones that survived the Spanish flu, like age and die. Like that's an abandonment in itself. That paired with Edward behaves like everyone else in the Twilight universe and believes there's like a right and wrong way to do things. He really cares what people think about him and he's stuck. There's a soulless thing called a vampire that I am. And then there's also this human thing that I want to be. And um, that resonates in a lot of ways. I, that's not Twilight specific. He came by all of it, honestly. He thinks he's a monster, but like, how could you not think you're a monster? You're a vampire. I get that. That doesn't take away from the fact that his internal struggle with this is it okay to be a vampire thing taints his relationships in general and makes connection really hard for him. In humans, people who feel unlovable survive typically by ignoring or denying their reality and numbing physical sensations. Vampires do this too. Spike and Buffy does it. Vampires drink sometimes. Edward, though, doesn't drink and he doesn't use drugs he doesn't have blood there's no way that it could even impact him he doesn't have physical sensations is that in itself not the same thing he doesn't have physical sensations he's like a constantly dissociated numb chunk of ice like he's not he is a dead body like i said earlier edward is trying very hard to figure out if he is the protector or if he's the threat he never gets his answer His identity is lost behind a hundred years of events that he had no control over. And we know from Body Keeps the Score that in order to have an identity, Edward has to trust himself. He has to know who he is and be able to trust his mind to differentiate between memory and imagination. How do you do that when you're a mythical creature? If someone were to drop onto this planet right now, make me a vampire... I wouldn't even be able to convince people I was a vampire to begin with. You know, like, it's just so, it's tragic. It's it's a tragedy. All vampire stories are tragedies to an extent. Again, when we're talking about, like, imagination and, like, making things up and seeing things, etc., would it be too much to ask for an Alice Cullen book? This is my second request now. Alice Cullen book, please, Stephanie Meyer, if you're going to do it. I would like to know how electroshock impacts the self-esteem of a vampire. But... We didn't get an Alice Cullen book. We got Twilight from Edward's perspective. So we get to see that Edward gaslights himself as much as he gaslights other people. Gaslighting is another one of these words, totally buzzword at this point, that people pretend to know, me including, that don't like totally get it. I probably used it 20 times before I understood what it meant. Uh, Fun fact about the word gaslight is if you look it up in the dictionary... Edward Cullen actually comes up as the picture. Anyways, the word originally comes from the 1938 play called Gaslight, where a husband tries to convince his wife that she's crazy as a part of a plot to steal the family jewels. (laughs) Part of how he drives her to madness is by messing with all the lights and making them flicker, and then telling her that they're not flickering. You're gaslighting somebody, telling them that something that is happening is not happening, and the purpose is to make them feel crazy. You can gaslight somebody on accident. Like, the way that people use it these days, it can be done accidentally. But 
I mean, part of it is with the intention of it. The result has to be that it makes somebody feel crazy. Edward Cullen gaslights in a bunch of ways, but his signature move involves spending a lot of time telling Bella he'll always be there for her with absolutely no intention of following through. We already saw that in the other quote earlier. From Bella's side of the story, it comes off like a man all in on commitment, and then she thinks there's something wrong with her for thinking that he might leave her, even though he totally gives off the I might leave you vibes when he, like, doesn't even check in on her, uh, is really rude about himself, like, constantly says, like, I'm not a good friend for you, like, all this stuff. What it ends up being is that the plot of the saga from Bella's perspective is the will she or won't she become a vampire? But the plot from Edward's perspective is will he or won't he give in to his desire to be with Bella, a.k.a. drink her blood, because there is no situation where he's with Bella where he doesn't turn her into a vampire and drink her blood. Strangely, his desire for her blood and her desire to become a vampire are actually completely compatible, but Edward like has this side plot going on. He has this like side objective quest that revolves around him denying bella all bodily autonomy and i don't really know why i guess that's what drives the actual plot because if she said i want to be a vampire and he said okay great i want your blood then the book would be over in 30 pages this is why this whole saga is like so painful is that it is actually propelled not by that plot line of will she become a vampire but by this side thing where he's seeing Bella as an extension of himself and he sees her as an extension of his lust and he's trying to escape those things himself and his lust by escaping her. She wants him and he wants her, but he thinks that she shouldn't want him because he hates himself. So like he's trying to escape himself and making that Bella's problem because he sees her as his lust. He that's like why he always watches without always being there too, because he's trying to escape her, but she hasn't done anything. She hasn't earned this hatred at all or this abandonment. She hasn't done anything, but she thinks she has because that's how he treats her. And why would he be treating her like something that isn't her? Well, because he sucks. That's why I've alluded to Edward being an incel in a couple of episodes, but actually that's just kind of, I'm trying to throw shade at him and it's outdated. He's really more of a simp. Incel is short for involuntary celibate, and in 2021, it refers to like an aggressive online subculture of men who feel entitled to commit violence in exchange for sex. That's not really, it doesn't really actually meet Edward's standards. I do think he is involuntarily celibate, but he's not a domestic terrorist outside of being a vampire. Part of why I, (laughs) the reason that I think that he's kind of funny about romance is from passages like this. He has his reaction to his first kiss with Bella in Midnight Sun. It's one part sweet and one part totally unnerving. It goes like this. Though I thought I was prepared, I was not entirely ready for the combustion. What strange alchemy was this, that the touch of lips should be so much more than the touch of fingers? It made no logical sense that simple contact between this specific area of skin should be so much more powerful than anything I'd yet experienced. It felt as if a new sun was bursting into being where our mouths met and my whole body was filled to a shatter point with this brilliant light of it. I only had a fraction of a second to grapple with the potency of this kiss before the alchemy impacted Bella. (laughs) It's just a lot. Even if Edward has been kissed, it's been a while. And even if he has kissed a human, it's definitely been a while since he kissed a human. Bella's the first human he's been physically close to that he hasn't been murdering with his teeth. So, like, 
I almost want to say he's the first she's the first human that he wasn't killing, but I do think he was killing her or at least stealing her life, so hmm, partial credit. I also found this like oh the alchemy of the kiss paragraph to be pretty informative of how Stephanie Meyer writes because at the beginning of Life and Death, she explains the changes she made and she says that Bo doesn't use flowery language. I thought this was kind of sus and it's easy to read into it. Okay, so the only difference between Bo and Bella is that he's a boy, right? So Bo is more logically brained, Bella is more creative brained and impulsive and fueled by emotion while he's like trying to process things outright and he's not going to worry about the poetry of the situation. But this Edward thing really throws a wrench in that sexist wheel because the his language is flowery as hell and he's a dude. So maybe it's because he's old. There's that most famous Twilight quote that's on the back of the book about three things I was absolutely positive. First, Edward was a vampire. Second, there was part of him, and I didn't know how potent that part might be that thirsted for my blood. And third, I was unconditionally and irrevocably in love with him. I have that quote memorized. We all have it memorized. We've seen it. We know it. It is the quote. In Life and Death, the bow version of that quote is... There were a few things I knew for sure. For one, Edith was an actual vampire. For another, there was a part of her that saw me as food. But in the end, none of that mattered. All that mattered was that I loved her more than I'd ever imagined it was possible of anything. She was everything I wanted, the only thing I would ever want. I don't mean to hold it against Bo that he doesn't have as many $10 words in the bank. I'm not saying that um, because he uses the word food instead of lust, that he's stupid. I'm not saying that. But why doesn't he have more $10 words in the bank? He reads just as much as Bella, and he is Bella. He's just a boy. So if Edward speaks eloquently about the alchemy of a kiss, is it not a boy-girl thing? And this is where we get to a point in the Twilight system, where it's so complicated because there's so many intersections. We're looking at the difference between men and women difference between vampire and human and the difference between time frames that are a hundred years apart this is such a homogenous group of people like almost everybody in the story is white almost all of them are teenagers and yet somehow there's like all these different polar opposite dichotomies that somehow create a world like this and then i don't understand where stephanie meyer is coming from anymore i don't think edward speaks crazy floral because He's a vampire. In these books, being a vampire is almost never the most salient characteristic of a person, of an identity. I think that's especially proven by the way that Edith is first and foremost treated like a fragile woman and not a vampire. I'm not exactly surprised Edward talks like this, considering he came of age at the same time pencils got popular. And he's got totally cherry-picked traits of new and old. He and his family drive new cars, they wear sophisticated clothing, and they all experience 2005 human pop culture because they, like, actually go to school and work with humans, and they're, like, totally integrated into human society. But they mostly keep their old hobbies. As far as I know, none of them play video games. They don't really watch TV. Rosalie probably practices calligraphy or something. Like, that's the vibe that she gives off. And I can only imagine... Alice trying a new spice chai recipe. Like, that's probably as modern as it gets. Like, modern tea. They don't do modern stuff. But they're a total mix of new and old because they do wear the clothes and drive the cars. Presumably, the Edward deck is stacked to make him look as attractive as possible to Bella. Like, that's why it's a romance. And presumably, anybody who's Team Edward would also be interested 
and this kind of man. Although some people are Team Edward just because they're not Team Jacob. It's a whole thing. I've learned a lot from the Twilight fandom the last few weeks. But presumably, there are people who are interested in this Edward type. The kind of man who is okay with adapting to new models of motor coach, but doesn't worry himself too much with the advancement of moving pictures, and evidently holds no opinions on civil rights. None. Literally, was alive for Martin Luther King. Nothing? kind of a red flag that he spends so much time contemplating the human condition but like only when it applies to his super narrow pacific northwest vampire vibe like very much only actually cares about his own human condition very interesting and again i want to make it clear that stephanie meyer doesn't owe us a woke vampire and i don't think that she owes us any sort of unflawed character or honestly anything at all It's more that this story and these characters went across the desks of so many wealthy executives who decided that these old-timey yet modern hot vampires were profitable and then they were released to the public who either agreed with that take or were so captivated by the tragedy of the filmmaking that they just kept returning to the theater. That, to me, is the part that speaks. Stephanie Meyer didn't owe us a different plot, but people took the one that she gave us. We all rubber-stamped it. In New Moon, Edward, finally, after working up his courage for months, gets the nerve to completely abandon Bella without explanation because he has decided, without consulting her, that he knows what is best for her. His departure wouldn't have been nearly as painful if he didn't spend the whole first book gaslighting her. The lights were flickering every time he suddenly disappeared, but he kept saying, Bella, nah, we're steady. We're good. Yeah, I didn't call you. I came back without calling you, but we're good. The scene in New Moon where Edward leaves is the emotional peak of the entire series, and you cannot convince me otherwise. Every emotional point past that is simply trying to recreate that level of emotion. Also, not only that, but it is a literary masterpiece and a cinematic masterpiece, It captures, like, the raw depression and solitude like nothing I've ever seen, even to this day. And I don't know if that's because it just hit me so hard at the point in my life that it hit me or what. But in the book, Edward leaves pretty abruptly. He's there and then he's not. Bella's life is all about him. And he's told Bella so many times that he'll be there to protect her. And he makes it seem like he cares so much. When he finally goes out for the proverbial pack of cigarettes, you turn the page and the new page is like mostly blank. And it would be like in another book, it might say like part one, part two, but it's mostly blank. And just in the middle of the page, it says October in all capital letters. And you turn the next page and it's similarly blank with just November. And then you turn the next page and it's December. And as you're reading, you're still coming to terms with the fact that Edward is leaving or that he left. And next thing you know, months have passed and you're still in anguish. It is mad clever. Like, you're holding the book, you're flipping the pages, now months have passed, but you really only read this, like, six words ago that he's gone. The New Moon movie manages to catch capture that same exact feeling cinematically, and it still hurts. It hurts just as bad as the book. The camera, like, slow pans in a circle around Bella sitting in a chair, and the month pops up like as a subtitle after each full rotation and we see the seasons changing outside and the quality of light is like dimming and coming back 
and this song plays called Possibility, and it's like this soft indie pop song, and it, and it basically like embodies Broken Innocence, and it's one of, it's hailed as one of the best songs to come from the Twilight soundtracks. Like it is so good. It is the audio embodiment of knives going through silk. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. It is exemplary filmmaking. And it, that kind of scene is everything I love about Twilight. It's basically creative self-harm. <laughs> like, watching Twilight is like, if you can just to evoke that much emotion. I know it's corny. I know this storyline is like young adult fiction. I love it. That's the kind of stuff that I live for. The things that make this scene work are more or less the same things that make Edward a really bad guy. He keeps secrets. All vampires keep secrets. That's part of their whole thing. They have to hide that they're a vampire. But he continues to keep secrets after the vampire thing comes out. At the end of the day, if the person you're hiding information from would be hurt by you hiding the information, then you're not like building trust with them at all and it's not a privacy issue it's like a secretive issue in buffy in vampire diaries in twilight at first when the vampire thing first comes up it's like this heavy suggestion of past murders and supernatural manipulation and whatever amount of soul searching allowed the vampire to even get to this place but what also matters is they really need to draw a line between what is private and what is a secret edward's like keeping secrets about things that would hurt Bella because they directly impact the relationship and not just because she wouldn't like something that he did once a hundred years ago. And I think that that makes him uniquely problematic as a vampire. He's the coldest vampire of all, literally and figuratively. I don't like him for that reason. I will never be team Edward. That's the Edward lore. He's not nice. He lies. He is not reformed the way that other vampires who fall in love with humans are. Yeah. So I'm going to leave you with a joke. What happens when you cross a vampire in a snowman? Frostbite. If you like this episode, please leave a review, share it with your friends. Uh, this podcast was written, recorded, and edited by me, Susie Shelton, and the theme music is by Alexis Lopez. Consider tuning into our sister podcast, Nurmer Nurmer, or following Nurmer Nurmer on Instagram. You can DM any feedback or questions to that account, and I will get back to you. All sources used for this episode are in the description. If you or somebody you know has experienced sexual assault, please know that you are not alone. The number for the sexual assault hotline is one 800 656 is confidential and available 24 hours a day. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number is 800-273-8255. Special thanks to you for listening to this podcast and extra special thanks to Stephanie Meyer for ruining my life.